The following audio is from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Acts is available at actschurchleander.com. Hey, well, I'm, I'm Gabe. I'm the, uh, the lead pastor here, uh, believe it or not, and uh, I'm glad to, to have you all with us today uh, and excited to, to share God's word with you. So um, I normally have a, a hands-free microphone, and uh, I'm a hand talker. I don't know if any of you are like that. I've actually, in fact, had people say like, hey, do you think Pastor Gabe would, would actually, you know, shut up if we tied his hands behind his back. Uh, and that probably would happen. So I'll just be half as quiet today because uh, i got to use this. Our, our um, hands-free mic is in disrepair, as is most things. So we are excited to move to our new space. Um, so at any rate, we are uh, continuing in this series, Simple, that we've been in for the last few weeks. Uh, and the idea behind this is to uncloud the Christian faith. So what we're doing is, is we're taking those things that are our core beliefs, core things to who we are as the church, as the people of God, but that sometimes get fuzzy. These things that are really important to us, but sometimes we're not clear on what they are, what they're about, what they really mean. And so we're trying to uncloud them over the next few weeks. And so we started off talking about the person of Jesus Christ, then the gospel, then the law. Last week I talked about the church. Um, and then this week or next week we're going to have a real chipper topic. We're going to talk about death, uh, what happens when you die. So you can look forward to that. And then uh, this week, though, we're going to talk about things on the other side of that, life. Life before death. What, what is this about? Why are we here? What, what do Christians believe about life? How, what, how does a Christian view all of life? And so that's our, our question today. What does it mean to engage all of life as a Christian? Uh, and that's actually an incredibly important question to answer, especially today, especially right now, uh, because we live in a very complex world, Right? It's interconnected, and so navigating all of this around us is actually very difficult to do as a Christian. Uh, here's what I mean. Uh, so a few years ago, uh, when I was still in seminary, I was, I was at a conference and flying in a plane, and I was flying back from this conference, and, and I don't know about you, but like, uh, when I fly, I, like, I don't want to talk to anyone. Like, I just go into like super introvert mode. Like, I, I don't know, I'm just like, I don't care what you do for a living. I don't care why you're traveling. Just let me read my book and listen to my music, you know, like... I don't know, it's character flaw, but that's my thing. So I don't like talking to people. Anyways, and so, uh, but as I was sitting there, and I'm in seminary at the time, I started thinking, you know, like every pastor I've ever heard preach in my life always has some story about some spiritual encounter they have on a plane. Is this true, right? Have you heard this if you grew up in the church? Right, it's wild. And so I was like, well, you know, I'm in seminary. If I'm going to become a pastor, I better have one of these spiritual encounters. Uh, And so before I could find anyone to proselytize, uh, I felt this tap on my shoulder and, and I turned around, and lo and behold, there was a, a young lady who was about my age. And her and I started talking, and she said, hey, so, so what do you do? And then I said, oh, I, I'm, I'm in seminary right now. And she got very excited, which is really weird if you tell people you're in seminary, they get excited. That does not normally happen. Um, and I was like, why? And she's like, oh, I used to be in seminary. And I was like, oh, wow, very cool. And I said, so why aren't you in it anymore? And she goes, oh, well, well I'm not a Christian anymore. It's a really good reason to not be in seminary anymore. Uh, and, and so as we talked, um, I, I asked her, I said, so, so why'd you leave the faith? And what she said blew me away. She said, I left the faith, you ready for this, because of TED Talks. TED Talks, okay? So if you don't know what TED Talks are, they're, TED's a, a nonprofit organization that, that sets up these, these talks, these little conferences for people that are experts or, or really excellent in a given field, and, and they share their ideas. They share what they're doing in the world. The, the tagline for TED Talks is, ideas worth spreading. And so it's basically just sharing ways to make the world a better place. And these talks made her leave the Christian faith. I said, what? Like, how does that work? 
And so I asked her, I said, why, why did that happen? And she said, well, after watching these, I realized the world is just too big. There's too much out there for just one thing to be true. Christianity just seemed so narrow to me. There's just too much out there. It seemed too narrow. Now, I tell you that story for this reason. One of the things that keeps me up at night is that I know her story is not unique. That I know that if I were to ask probably every single one of you here this morning, if you know of someone who maybe grew up in a Christian family, grew up in a Christian household, and then went off on their own and abandoned the faith, and if I said, do you know anyone like that, almost every single one of you would be able to raise your hands. And there's a billion reasons that that happens. A billion reasons that happen, but I believe one of the main reasons is our inability to answer this question. What does it mean to engage all of life as a Christian? Not just this thing I do on Sunday, not just this section in the waffle, not just this part of my life, but all of life as a Christian. What does that mean? What's that about? And what we see in our text is this, that in the person of Jesus Christ, we have everything we need to engage the complexities of life. In the person of Jesus Christ, we have everything we need to engage all the complexities of life. And so here's what we'll see. It's kind of an outline, all right? So the point one will be we'll see that his resurrection opens up new life, that Jesus' return inspires new life, and because of those two things, that demand, the present demands new life of us, okay? Resurrection opens up new life. Return inspires new life. The present demands new life. And so let's go. Jesus' resurrection opens up new life. You got your Bibles open. Look with me at verses 19 through 22 in our text. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All right, so let's just trace, uh, Paul's the author of this text, St. Paul's the author of this text. Let's just, let's just trace his argument here, okay? So, so verse 19 says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, hey, if, if following Jesus, if living for him, if living united to him is just about this life, where we're at right now, he says, we are to be pitied out of most people in the entire world. Now, why would he say that? Because when he's writing this text, it was not very popular to be a Christian, right? People didn't like you if you were a Christian. You're more likely to get jailed, to meet an untimely death. People didn't care for you. And so we think of even today our brothers and sisters across the globe who face persecution. We think of young girls in the Middle East who are kidnapped and raped and murdered because they don't denounce Jesus as Lord. And you think about that, and verse 19 makes a lot of sense, right? That if following Jesus is just about your best life now, Joel, for millions of people, that makes no sense at all. And if we're reading our culture right, right now, I'm pretty sure our days of comfortable Christianity are fairly limited as well. But then in verse 20, Paul gives us some hope. Verse 20 says this, so if, if this life, following Jesus is just this life, it's not a good thing. But he says, but in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then he explains what that means. He says, okay, so, so Adam sinned, which means that everyone died, right? Death rate for humanity remains at 
Everybody dies. Still happening, okay? But he says, ah, so we all die because of Adam, but because of Christ, because Jesus rose from the grave, because he beat death, those of us in solidarity with him, those of us who trust in him, we too will rise from the grave. We will have a resurrection like his. Jesus has power over death. Now, some of may say, okay, Gabe, get what you're saying, but that's a, that's a hope for life after death. I thought you said this was about life right now. Like, what does that have to do with life right now? What does Jesus' resurrection have to do with life right now? Well, no one can put it better than my boy N.T. Wright. Um, so let me just quote him here. He says, in reference to 1 Corinthians 15, he says this. Paul gives the fullest exposition in all early Christian writing of Jesus' resurrection and what it means. It means that a new world order has arrived in the present in the person of the risen Jesus. Summoning everybody to become people of the future. People in Christ. People remade in the present to share the life of God's future. In other words, what he's saying here is that in the resurrection of Jesus, we get a picture of our future and are brought into a present reality that shapes us to live into that future right now. That Jesus' resurrection opens up a new way of doing life right now. And that sounds nice, okay, that's, that's good, but, but like, like what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, if we're going to get that, first we need to understand what that future is. What's, what's that future that, that uh, we have in Christ when he returns? Well, look with me, second point, Jesus' return inspires new life. Look with me at verses 23 to 26. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. All right, so Paul says here, hey, Jesus is the first fruits. In him, we get a glimpse of what it's going to be like when we are raised to new life, what it's going to be to take part in resurrection life. And then he's going to return, and when he comes back, Paul says he's going to hand the kingdom over to the Father and he's going to destroy every rule and authority and power and he's going to put all his enemies under his feet, including the final enemy, death. Now what does that mean? Right? Like normally I feel like when we think of Jesus, we get this picture of him just like holding the lamb and petting it softly and like just hugging everyone and and, and that sort of thing. That is not the picture Paul's painting here, right? He's going to destroy every rule and authority and power, put enemies under his feet. What is that about? Here's the reality. Jesus has enemies. Because evil exists. And darkness exists. And sadness and sickness and everything that is wrong and broken in this world. And so what Paul's saying here is that when judgment day comes... Jesus is going to clean house. Those things that destroy and oppress and bully and injustice, those things that, that harm people, that harm this creation, Jesus is going to say there's going to be no room for that anymore. I'm done with it. It's going to be healing. Death will be no more. And see, this is something we talk about a lot here. See, there's a common misconception in American Christianity that, that God has some plan to destroy his creation. No, no, no. When Jesus comes back, he's going to renew his creation. 
Everything that's broken in this world, relationships that are severed, things that are divided between us, things like injustice and war and poverty and hunger and racism and sexism and cruelty and violence, those will be done. There's going to be no place for that. The world will be as it was supposed to be. The biblical word for it is shalom. It's this idea of peace, this idea of wholeness, that things are set up the way they're going to be. Everyone in harmony. See, that's, that's the picture that Jesus' resurrection points us to. That's the, the future that inspires us to live right now. And you say, Gabe, how does that work? How does that future inspire me to live right now? How does that work? Well, we live with what I call active anticipation. Active anticipation. For example, uh, I'm told that baseball players, I don't know anything about baseball because it is the most boring sport in the world, um, and I'm told that, that <laughs> made a lot of friends there. Uh, but I'm, I'm told that baseball players are, are told by their coaches uh, to anticipate the, wa- the, the way the ball is going to fly once it's been hit. They're told to anticipate that. And what that means, apparently, is that the fielder, it's not so much that they should guess in advance, well, I think it's going to go here. It's that they actually, before the ball's even hit, start moving into the correct position so that they can catch the ball when it comes. Right? That's, that's what it is for them to anticipate the catch. To anticipate God's future is not simply to think about it, it's to act on it. Right? So an illustration that rings more true with my experience. Uh, a musical director will tell a singer or a musician to anticipate the beat. Anticipate the beat. It means you, you actually play or sing just a, a, a hair of a second before the, the music actually kicks in. You just, you just jump right in right before the written music indicates. You anticipate the beat. That's the idea. That when we anticipate the future that God is bringing about through the healing rule and reign of Jesus, we, we live into that truth. We anticipate the fullness of God's healing rule and reign, and we live into that. Now, I say all this, right, and that sounds all well and good. Like, okay, that's cool. That's future. God's shalom, kumbaya. I love it. Okay, but, and, and, and I'm supposed to live into that right now. I get that, but that all sounds a little bit theological, Gabe. It's a bit ethereal. It's a bit abstract. Like, like what's going on here? Let me just say this first. Please understand what I'm trying to do and what we're trying to do here, what Paul's trying to do in this text is he's trying to re-narrate the world for us. What, what this text is trying to do is trying to re-narrate the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Say, so what does that mean? What are you talking about? Here's the deal. Uh, we live in a world that has no coherent account of itself. Right? We, 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 we don't, life becomes this sort of, well, this happened, so I guess we'll do this. This happened, I guess we'll do this. And so everything just becomes kind of reactionary to whatever is going on because we have no coherent account for why we're here, why we exist, what we're supposed to be doing, where we're headed. And so we watch our news feed, right? And you see a disaster here. You see an insoluble problem here. And then you see an advertisement for some new product to make you feel better and make you think the world's all right, right? But the reality is, apart from a coherent account for why we exist and towards what end we're headed, we continue in these cycles of destruction, in which we know something's not right, but we actually cut out the legs of that which would truly fix it. In his uh, great book on education, actually, uh, The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. And all the time, such is the tragic comedy of our situation. We continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. 
You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings to be fruitful. In other words, as one article put it this week, our culture demands certain virtues, but it removes and mocks the very means by which those virtues are developed. And so you think about the news that just broke this last week, right? So this, this article mentioned this. We over-sexualize young girls and are horrified when they are seen as sexual objects. We lampoon monogamy and marriage and are shocked when people commit adultery. We sacrifice everything for sexual freedom and are mortified when those sacrifices show up on undercover videos. You see, this happens because we don't have a clear account for life. Why are we here? What are we doing? Where are we headed? The, the philosophical term for that is tell us. What's our end goal? What are we headed towards? But see, the Christian account for existence, we have an end in mind. We have a telos, we have a goal, we have a place where we know we're headed, and that's got to shape how we live right now. See, we have a story that goes like this, that we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the whole world, and that he rose again three days later, and those of us who trust in him, we will also rise, and he's going to return, and we anticipate that day when he returns, and he sets the world right once and for all, and we live in a new creation where there's no more abuse, no more exploitation, no deception, no sin, no sadness, no death, and so in light of that story... We live all of life pursuing the good, all of life pursuing the beautiful, all of life pursuing the true and the noble and the pure. And see, we don't do that because it's our duty. We do it because it's our destiny, because that's where we're headed, because that's what we're made for. Brilliant theologian Stanley Hauerwas puts it like this. Under such a story, life ceases to be the grim, just one darn thing after another. He doesn't actually say darn, but PG around here, folks. Um, Sort of existence we have known before. The little things of life, marriage, children, visiting an 80-year-old nursing home resident, listening to a sermon, are redeemed and giving eschatological significance. The word eschatological means like God's future, what we've been talking about, this healing, rule, and reign that's coming. Our fate is transformed into our destiny. That is, we are given the means of transforming our past, our history of sin, into a future of love and service to neighbor. So do you see this? Like, do you get how, how Jesus' resurrection opens up new life to all, and then as we look to his return... We're inspired to actually live in anticipation of that now. And so because of those first two truths, the present demands new life of us, point three. Let's look at how Paul talks about his present life at the end of our text. With me at verses 30 through 34. Paul says this, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I love this text, right? Because Paul says, hey, if, if Jesus isn't coming back, if he didn't really rise from the dead, if I don't have hope of eternity with him, why am I facing the struggles I face every day? Why am I literally fighting beasts in Ephesus? Why am I risking my life for the sake of the gospel if we don't have this hope of eternity with him? He says, if, if, if he's not coming, he quotes a, a hedonistic philosopher at that time, and he says, let's eat and drink and party and YOLO because it doesn't really matter, right? Let's just live it up. But then he says, listen, that, you know that's not the case. It's not the case. And he quotes actually another philosopher at that time, and he says, bad company ruins good morals. And he says, wake up from your drunken stupor and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. See, Paul's argument here is that we tr if we truly take the account of Jesus' resurrection seriously, and if we truly take his return and his healing rule and reign seriously, like if that's actually a reality, if that's actually how the world works, he says, that puts a charge on us right now to live in the present differently, to stop sinning. Why? Because some have no knowledge of God. And now, this sounds really harsh, right? He's like cracking the whip at him at the end of this, this, this text. But we need that sometimes, right, church? Right? We need that sometimes. Uh, many of you know I, I do some work with a ministry called uh, Nineveh, and, and we, we uh, share the gospel in the, the juvenile detention system here in Williamson County. And then we partner people up with mentors, these, these kids up with mentors after they get out to, to walk with them. And uh, at any rate, the, the whole way I got into working with Nineveh was I was, I was meeting with um, the director of the Williamson County area, and, and she said this to me. She said, Gabe, listen, this is why I do this. She said, the devil's got plenty of people that want to spend time with these kids. Why don't God's people want to spend time with them? And that right there, I was like, conviction central, right? Like, she just got me, and so I'm in, done, right? It sounds harsh, but what did she do? She reminded me that my view of life has an end of, in mind, that I'm to live this life with active anticipation in mind, that Jesus is bringing about a rule and reign in which those who the world pushes aside, he loves, and so I'm called to love them too. Incidentally, side note, Nineveh is woefully short on male mentors. Uh, so if you're interested in doing that, talk to me afterwards. Um, but let me just be clear here. There's some of you here this morning, and you need to hear what this text is saying in verse 34. You need to hear what it's saying. Wake up from your drunken stupor and do not go on sinning. Why? Because some people have no knowledge of God. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Do not go on sinning. Why? Because some people have no knowledge of God. So stop looking at porn. Stop gossiping about people. Stop being lazy about your faith. Stop being a consumer of religious goods and services and giving nothing back to anyone. Stop holding on to your bitterness. Why? Because some people have no knowledge of God. See what this text is saying? It's saying you're wasting your time on that which will never satisfy, that which you're not made for, that which is going to destroy you. When God has called you towards a different end, he's called you to aim towards the future in Jesus Christ. Do you get that? Do you get that? See, everything you have is a gift. Every breath you have has been given to you by your creator. 
Your redemption has been given to you by your Savior. God's Spirit is at work in you every single day. Wake up from your stupor and let that shape your life. So, um, for whatever reason, God has brought many people in my life who, who wrestle with uh, addiction issues, and we all have our own addictions, uh, but, but generally substance abuse is a more obvious illustration for us. So let me just share a story. Uh, when I was working at a church my first year really in ministry, I was working at a church in Minnesota, and um, I, I met this guy at a, a Celebrate Recovery meeting, and he invited me to go play drums at his house. And so I was like, all right. And, and so Andy is his name, and I went to go play drums at his house. And, and I, I show up, and I'm texting him, and he's not responding. I knock at the door, he's not responding. Finally, his neighbor comes out, and he says, uh, he says, oh, and my title at the time was Vicar. He goes, oh, Vicar, you're here. The church sent you over. Thank goodness. And I was like, what? I'm just here to play drums. They're like, no, no, no. Andy's inside. He's a mess right now. He's, he's super high, and his parents want to kick him out of the house. You got to go do it. What? Like, I just met this dude. Like, I don't know, this is very weird. Uh, and I was like, I don't think I'm going to do that. And the guy's like, no, come on, we can do it. And I was like, all right. So, so I go in, I've got like this little hand drum with me. And, and I go in, and, and Andy opens the door, and he's, he's literally, he's half naked. He's kind of out of his mind at this point. And the neighbor goes, hey, uh, Andy, your parents are kicking you out of the house, uh, so give me your keys. Uh, Vicar Gabe's going to counsel you now. Takes the keys and leaves. And so I was like 21. And so I was like, uh, um, all right. Um, and so I sit there with this dude, and I'm like, I don't, what am I going to say? And so we just sat, I mean, honestly, I just sat there for a long time, and he just sobered up. And, and, then, and then he and I started talking. I said, man, you know what's going on? And he's explaining to me some of the insides of his heart. I said, dude, you got you to gotta get yourself cleaned up. You got you to gotta knock this off. He's like, I know. It's not good for me. I need to stop doing this for me. I got to get myself together. And I said, bro, you know what? That's fine. But do you know why you got to get cleaned up? It's actually not about you. You're wasting your time on this stuff when you could be serving people. There's kids that need you. There's people in your life that are dependent upon you, and you're wasting your life in this sin, in this stuff that's holding you back. God's created you for much more. And see, the same is true for us, right? We get so caught up in our own sins, in our own brokenness, in our own messes that we miss out on the life that God has called us to embrace, on the people he's called us to serve. So friends, don't let that happen. Let the reality of Jesus' resurrection for you sink in for you. Let the hope of his return be in focus for you. And see, if you see that, if you have your hope in him, if you have your trust in him, you can engage all of life with the hope that he gives, not because it's a duty, but because it's your destiny. If you all please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to be together as your people. Lord, I pray as we um, look to the day when, when Jesus returns and sets the world right, and as we look back on the day when, when he opened a way for us to receive eternal life, I pray that that would shape how we live right now. That we'd engage this whole world with the fullness that you give us in Jesus. That we'd pursue goodness and beauty and truth not because it's a duty, but because it's our destiny. Teach us to do that each day. May your spirit guide us. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.